Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. My first date was three. You know, made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as we understand him. I think that's the right terminology. Yep. yep. And um, and so I'm listening. And so, you know, being the good student that I am, I raise my hand, you know, hey, um, so um, what about me? I'm an atheist and I don't believe. And, and they said, they did say, doesn't have to be God, can be any kind of higher power. And I said, but I'm an atheist. I don't believe in any kind of higher power. And they said, well, you have to, if you, you will, you will relapse if you don't turn your will and your life over to a higher power. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have Mary Beth O'Connor, who is a retired administrative law judge who has been clean and sober for 27 years. Substance use disorder is only part of her story, as she is also in recovery from abuse and trauma. Mary Beth currently serves as the director and secretary for She Recovers Foundation and is a director for Life Ring Secular Recovery. In August 2020, Mary Beth had an op-ed published in the Wall Street Journal called I beat addiction without God. (laughs) And in November, 2020, she had an op-ed published in the Philadelphia Inquirer in support of a safe injection site. Quote, I was a federal judge and I support safe house. Here's why. Mary Beth's memoir writings have been published in Memoir Magazine, Awakenings, The Noyo River Review, The Fault Zone, Carry the Light, and Raven's Perch. She is working on a full-length memoir with the working title from Junkie to Judge, Recovery Without God. Mary Beth can be reached at marybeth at junkietojudge.com. And her website is junkietojudge.com. Oh, this is so cool. She Mary Beth is incredible. She got sober at 32. She went to law school at 39 and has been sober for 27 years. She was put into a 12-step treatment program, rehab, and said, this is not going to work for me. And instead, and they told her that, well, you're not going to recover then. And instead she decided to go and find secular options. And she did. And she went to the library and she found them. And it's just an incredible story of someone who's determined to get sober and also someone recovering from major childhood trauma, which I think is a, a, a common part of many stories uh, of women who find themselves struggling with addiction. I highly recommend checking out the articles in the Wall Street Journal, I Beat Addiction Without God, and the programs that we discuss, She Recovers Foundation, Life Ring Secular Recovery, Smart Recovery. These are amazing options. And also you can reach out to Mary Beth herself for more information about getting sober without God which is of course an option. Any way that you get sober is the right way to get sober for you as long as you are getting well. And that's an important message that we want to spread. And furthermore, that you can have a professional career and be a person in recovery that you can reach out and you can get help while you're in a professional career, all of those things. So these are really important messages and also in a amazing interview and uh, some some good entertainment as well. So I hope that you enjoy Mary Beth O'Connor, episode 129. Let's do this. 
You're listening to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Mary Beth, so glad to have you here. Thank you for being here. Well, thanks for having me, Ashley. I'm really excited about talking with you today. Me too. Me too. So I have this, we we've in season three, we've started every episode with a, it started off as a bad haircut picture. Um, people have interpreted it lots of different ways, which is awesome. I have a picture of you. It looks like you're in a plaid, the plaid jumper I used to wear at Catholic school and looks like a school picture and glasses. And I wanted to know it's going to be posted with this episode on our Instagram. Tell me a little bit about this photo. So that is my sixth grade school photo. It wasn't Catholic school, but I assume that was the style. You know, I, I, my mother was a very styling woman. And so usually she tried to keep us up to date too. And the thing that I thought was interesting about the hair in that photo is my mother used to make us keep our hair short until I think it was 12 or 13. And she finally let me grow it out. So I, that hair is actually probably close to my shoulders. And yet I put it up in the back and then I have these long sides, which sort of defeats the whole purpose of being allowed to finally grow your hair out. Oh, that's so, do you think you were trying to please mom with the short? It was actually, it was actually a style. We would use a barrette and put the back up and leave the sides hanging and not a flattering style. I do not think, you know, (laughs) even at the time, but, um, but yes, I just thought it was an interesting uh, moment considering I had just recently been allowed to grow out my hair. (laughs) I love that. I love that. So in that vein, tell me a little bit about what your childhood was like, where you're from and what it was like growing up in your house. So I actually had an uh, unusual, as I say, things didn't go well from the beginning. (laughs) My mother was um, not married to my biological dad. And this is a big deal in like 1960s Catholic working class family. And so the Catholic church at the time had this system where they had unwed mother's home. And I grew up in South Jersey and the unwed mother's home was in Philadelphia. And so what you would do is what the, the women did, they pretended they were in Boston or somewhere else some excuse. And so they would go to the Philadelphia on one mother's home and the church would route their mail through wherever they were supposed to be so that there was just this whole big cover. And so my mother had me at the unwed mother's home and uh, my grandparents wouldn't allow her to bring me back to the house. And so I lived at the nunnery for about the first six months of my life. I lived with the nuns. And it's kind of funny because when I was little, my sister, my mom would take my sister and I to visit the nuns. And I just thought, well, all Catholic girls must visit the nuns. I didn't know there was anything unusual about it, you know, but, um, but my mother did marry my sister who became my sister's father and he adopted me. And then I had my sister who's, although she's biologically half, we didn't, I didn't know that, but anyway, we, you know, she's not even two years younger than me. We're very close sisters. And so that was, as I say, the sort of the um, unusual start, even from, from before I was out of my mother's body, (laughs) the situation was already complicated. So you were, you were born to buck the system. You were born to, to take a different path. I I can appreciate that. I can appreciate that. Did, uh, so your mom, she 
had to go back and forth. Did you, when did you stop going? So six at six months, you stopped going to Philadelphia and then did you live back in Jersey? So the nunnery was actually in, in Yardville, which is next to Trenton, where my mother lives. So she, I was moved to the nunnery, um, you know, near her home. And so she would visit. She she used to say, well, even in, uh, under my mother's explanation, it was like, you know, maybe once or twice a week she would come by and visit me. Um, but then when she married my my sister's father, then I moved in with them. And I was around Got six it. months old at that time. And then my sister was born around a year after that. Got um, it. Okay. But, that, okay. but that didn't last either. That marriage didn't, didn't last. And but so. he was he was the catalyst for you to be a family like that was yes. she had to marry someone in order for you to come home. Exactly right. Exactly right. There was no other way for her to, to get me home. In fact, she started dating him when she was pregnant with me. And so because my biological dad had basically rejected her, there was some big family meeting, you know, trying to get him to marry her. My grandparents were, of course, very upset, but he wouldn't do it. His parents didn't want him to do it. Um, and so she had started marrying John when she was pregnant with me before I was born. And then he did marry her. And then he actually did adopt me. And so he, you know, my last name was his last name. And I was brought up to believe that he was my father. Oh, and, and when did you find out that he wasn't your father? Well, so this is how things go in my family. So um, I had biology my freshman year of high school and they were doing the blood type experiment. Oh, Lord. And so I asked my mother for the blood type of her and John, who I thought was my father, and she gave it to me. Like, she just gave right. it to me. Well, it doesn't match. Okay, <laughs> It didn't match. And so that sort of rang a bell. I was like, oh, that explains a lot. You know, like just right. there was it just sort of. It, it felt right. Like that seemed like, okay, now I understand what's been going on. And of course, be, being the good student that I was, I altered my test, my blood test results right. because I didn't want to have a bad grade because of my, you know, what had happened. And I didn't want the teacher to ask me questions or think I had right. done it wrong. Right. So right, right, it's right. just to me, such a little microcosm of everything, you know, school and and my, my mother didn't seem to give it a second thought that perhaps there wouldn't be a match. Like it didn't seem to even have occurred. To her. And then she never asked me. She never asked me afterward about it. And I didn't tell her. I never brought it. I didn't bring it up. I, I, so I she didn't know you knew. She didn't know I knew. Wow. She didn't know I knew. No. How long did that? How long did the did John stay in your life? So she separated from John when I was six. And my sister and I went and lived with his great, his grandmother, our great grandmother, who her, her, her husband, our great grandfather had recently died. In fact, my mother told me at the funeral, told, told us at the funeral that we were going to go live with Nan, um, that they were getting divorced. So, you know, again, <laughs> yeah. a um, formative moment. Um, but Nan was nice. I mean, we liked, you know, we liked Nan. She was good. And we lived with her for three years. And then my mother married my stepfather and we moved back in with her like it was about nine months later, but we did move back with her. And then they had a, a boy who's my brother, who I always knew was my half brother. He's a lot younger than I am. What was the relationship like with this stepdad? Because I know it was different. Yeah. So he was, you know, the first time I met him, I remember he's just, he was a very charming, you know, outgoing guy. He wasn't really bright. My mother was very smart. My mother actually went on Jeopardy. She's, she's a very smart woman. Um, and he wasn't. So that was a mismatch. But they both had a certain charisma, which was, you know, similar. And he had a good union job. And my mother was really focused on, you know, 
money and having nice things. And he had a, he had a good job. I'm sure she would have rather married someone a white collar that she would have felt, you know, more white picket fancy, but he did, he did meet her financial criteria in general. And so the first time that we went to his home to, because he lived with his brother and his father, after we left, um, he was not happy with something I had said. His, his father had made spaghetti for us. And his father was really true Italian. He, he had um, mm. come over and, uh, and he asked us to be like, you know, do you like spaghetti? Yeah. Yes. Well, come taste this. Well, he, it was this sweet sauce. It wasn't the sort of the typical spicier Italian sauce I was used to. And I said something, I said something along the lines of that's not spaghetti sauce. That's just squished tomatoes. <laughs> and, and Alan didn't say anything at the time, but when we left, he was really unhappy about that. And he was berating me in the car. And my mother was trying to, you know, stand up a little bit for me. And he hit her you know, he really hit her hard across the face. And he, so we pulled over, we got out of the car, my mother's, you know, crying. And then he comes back and makes his apologies and we all get Mm. back in the car. And, and my mother told me later that this was like a week before the wedding. And she just assumed that it was just stress from the wedding, you know? So that was my first violence experience. But once we moved in with him, violence was a regular part of our lives, violence against her, violence against us, not, not my brother, because that was his child, right? Mm-hmm. But my brother witnessed it, which is also, you know, yeah. traumatic in a different way. And so that was, we moved in with him was I was nine and I lived with him until I left for college. Wow. And so that kind of violence, how did that shape you? What kinds of things were pivotal in your, your upbringing? I mean, of course, you always feel like you're walking on eggshells. It's not like he was violent every day. You know, sometimes weeks, maybe even a couple, a month or two might go by, but you just never knew what was going to trigger him. It was like, you know, it was a lot of little things. Like, I feel like there were these rules that kept getting switched around. And for example, we weren't allowed to walk barefoot in the house. That was some big no-no. Well, until he told us that we didn't know, we'd walk barefoot every summer our whole lives. And so these rules were coming out of left field to us. It wasn't even like we were violating them on purpose. They were contrary to anything we had ever known before. And then we would have rules like at the, I remember at the dining room table, he both didn't want to be bothered to pass you a dish, but he didn't want you to reach across the table. Well, it's one or the other sometimes. Right, right, right. (laughs) Most times. Yeah. It's going to be hard. One or the other. So you didn't know, but sometimes it would just slide by and other times Mm. it was a major trigger. Um, and so it was just that sense of never knowing when, when things were going to get out of control. So trying to trying to be able to predict what might trigger him, but also knowing that no matter what you did, no matter your best efforts, it was, it was an impossibility. And I, I know I, I did certain things, like I developed certain techniques to try to avoid his anger. Um, one of the ones I tell, because I, I really think it's so meaningful, is when we would come home from school, he worked shift work. Sometimes he worked so that he was sleeping when we got home from school. And his bedroom was near the porch and door that we went in and the kitchen door. So I would give my sister my books and I would open the screen door. Like I would hold the handle and the latch and pull them at the same time. So they didn't make a snapping noise. And then we would go on the porch and then my sister would open the screen door and I would put the key in the actual door and it it tended to stick. So you had to push it exactly hard enough that it would open on the first try, but not so hard it would bang on the radiator if you opened it. And so I I would put the key in very carefully and try to give it just the right amount of push. And so there were all these sort of um, these 
techniques to try to, to try to reduce our risk, but that's mm. all you could do was to do some degree, reduce the risk, but you could never eliminate it. Did you witness him hurting your mother on a regular basis? How often would that be? And what was your reaction to that? I mean, it would, it was fairly regular, but I don't, I can't really say how often, cause you know, you sort of tend to forget yeah. some of these things and they blend together. The truth is more that they, they blend together, but certainly Meals were a high risk time when we're all at the table. You didn't know what might happen there. Um, sometimes he would attack our mother at night and wake us from our sleep. Uh, and that was a problem. In fact, my brother's bedroom, my sister and I shared a room while my brother was down the hall and he was, as I said, younger. And so when they would start, you know, the screaming and the hitting, we knew he was going to hear it. And so I used to have to sort of run down the hall and grab him and bring him back to our room. But it was mm -hmm. risky because sometimes Alan might charge from his room over to where we were and we I, I didn't want to get caught in the middle of the hallway because then the attention would be on me and so there was a lot of just a lot of there's a lot of ripples when you deal with somebody who's violent it just impacts so many different areas of your life that you don't even realize until later i mean a lot of this is just thinking about it after the fact at the yeah. time it's just survival techniques right and you do what you can did you ever ask your mom why she stayed you know Later on, she asked me one time whether he had ever sexually abused me and he, and he had touched me once and he had threatened to many, many, many times. So I was always waiting for the next event. But I told her that he didn't because and I was like maybe 19 at the time because I knew that's what she wanted to hear. Right. And she said something along the lines of if I would have ever known anything like that, I would have done something about it. And I said, but you didn't do anything about what you knew. So why would I believe that? Right. And so we just didn't really talk about it. I didn't really, I never, I didn't trust her. I knew she wasn't really there for me. I knew that from yeah. when I was a child. And so it wasn't as if I expected her to help me. I think I had yeah. lost that expectation a long time beforehand. And certainly I, I lost it when we were there. Now he did do the worst violence against us when she wasn't there, but she saw enough that, yeah. you know, that she knew there were things going on. When you say that he would threaten to do it again, what, what was that? situation. Like he would back me up against the wall, you know, and get really close to me and say something about my breasts or my body or any, or he would have an erection and he would rub up against me. And I was always waiting for the next, you know, serious events, but it, it never happened. But I didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah, right. So yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I, I'm yeah. always waiting for it. And it wasn't as if it happened the first time. And then he just never mentioned it again. He did. Got it. He would say he often commented on my body and I, I developed early and, you know, and at the time, you know, it's the seventies hot pants and halter tops are in and yeah. it was a sort of body exposing time. And I was built, you know, for my age. And so that was always another level of fear inside the house was when he might do something like that. So I really didn't want to be alone with him in the house. I mean, I didn't want to be alone with him anyway, but that was another reason that he would only yeah. do if it was just me and him. Right. Um, so that was just a whole nother layer to the whole thing. Right. How did you find ways to cope with that? That's obviously an extremely high stress situation on all fronts. You're thinking about protecting your brother. You're thinking about protecting your sister, your mom, yourself. I mean, it, there's so many different layers that your brain as a little kid is, is, you know, cycling through. How did you find ways to cope? I'm assuming that some of these things 
some of the ways you started to cope were indicators of what was to come. Yeah. I mean, before the drugs, I actually had some OCD type tendencies. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. For example, I, I had a hairbrush set. It was like a brush and a comb and a mirror. And this, remember, I don't know, you, you might be too young, but Marsha Brady had this thing about brushing her hair a hundred mm-hmm. times at night, right? Yep. So I, I had a little beauty routine, routine and I brushed my hair, but I had this sort of superstitious belief that I had to put the brush, the comb, and the mirror down in a certain order. And they had to mm. fit, like the brush had to be on its bristles. The, the mirror had to be in the middle. The comb had to have the teeth out. And I had to lay them down in a, in a certain order. And sometimes I would suddenly freeze because I realized I hadn't done it right. And I had, even though I, I did know they were irrational, I still believed that if I didn't do it right, something horrible was going to happen to my little baby brother. You know, like mm-hmm. I would just have visions of him being like hit by a car on his big wheel or, you know, some drowning in the pool that, that if I didn't do this right, something bad was going to happen to Albert. So I had some OCD like tendencies. I had anxiety. Um, I, I was, de- I think I was depressed. I, you know, sometimes I wouldn't want to leave the house or, or if he was working when he was working the shift when he wasn't home when we got from school, um, all of that. But then when I was 12, I started the substance use, which, you know, was in, at the time seemed like the better solution. <laughs> totally. What did, what did you find? How did you come across? Was, was does, was Alan, Alan, did I get Alan. Right? Alan, was Alan a drinker? He, he was my mother, my mother and my mother's side of the family are not big drinkers, but um, there's gambling addiction, but not really uh, substance use. But Alan was a drinker. He wasn't I don't wouldn't say he was an alcoholic, but he was an abuser. He would get drunk and mostly on beer and drink too much and think, you know, there would be fights over that fights with his friends at parties, you know, because they right. were drunk or his brother or something along those lines. Um, so he he did drink. But, and so my first drug was alcohol, although it wasn't from him. Um, it was my girlfriend stole a Boone's Farm, Strawberry Hill, Strawberry Hill Farm wine, whatever, from her sister. <laughs> and she brought it to the house and I was, I was 12. And that was my first high was, was alcohol, which in my day, alcohol was the typical, what, you know, they later would call gateway drug, you know? Um, right. So yeah, we, we, we drank, we shared, we split a bottle of Boone's Farm, Strawberry Hill wine. It's such a it's such a classic story, right? Like I, I swear, Boone's Farm is like part of so many people's childhoods. It's 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 funny, you know. Something that's interesting about your situation, your your progression, is that you you moved up to hard drugs and 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 you know significantly hard drugs through high school but you still managed to get into college and go to a great school and something, you know, just from my own experience, you know, I, I, I grew up in a, my nuclear family and I, I didn't have the, the some of the aspects that you described, but I did have many of them and I found drugs and alcohol early, but I became so unable to do anything to show up anywhere. And it always amazes me these people who are able to use and function at the same time, because just frankly, because it's not my experience, I was just singularly focused. I wonder, you know, because my parents weren't abusing me, I wonder um, if 
there was a piece of this that was that coping, you had to be functioning. So to protect yourself, to protect everybody else and to get yourself out of the situation. Is any, does any of that resonate? I mean, I certainly, when I, whatever I used, I abused, but so alcohol, I abused, I went to pot, I abused it, then pills and then acid I abused, but I, but it wasn't daily. You know, I didn't have Hmm. daily use until I turned to meth, which was my drug of choice. And so I would abuse it. But usually it was when I wasn't home because you're right at home. uh, First of all, I would have worried a bit in the beginning about getting caught. But I did feel the need to sort of be on my toes. You know, you had to sort of be on alert, be on Mm -hmm. hyper alert. And so in the beginning, the alcohol or pot or the other drugs, they were really a release when I was out with other people. Right. Now, I, I, I really started, um, even with alcohol, drinking before I went to wherever I was going, right? To get mm. that head start. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, you gotta be efficient. Or, you know, you gotta be efficient, exactly right. And um, and like we had acid, was, there was this acid called four-way when I was in high school and it was supposed to be four hits. So it was a four-way window pane. It was uh, on a paper acid and it was there was four for tabs, but they were together and you're supposed to do one or two. And, you know, we usually do three or four, you know, it was a, a lot of excess. And I would use, I used a lot of acid when I was in school during the day at school. Um, <laughs> but, but at home I would, I was at first worried about getting caught. I didn't really want to have alcohol in my breath. I tried to come home when they were, when I knew they were like, focused elsewhere. Also, my um, my sister and I moved into a garage over the apartment when I was, uh, I mean, an apartment over the garage when I was 13. And that made it easier to sort of sneak in the house and not have anyone see you when you came home from a party, as long as they heard the door, you yeah. know, if they were paying attention at all. But, but that made it a little bit easier. But as far as school goes, I didn't use in school that much until the acid. And even then it wasn't like every day. It was just sometimes I was pretty high in school. Um, But where it really started to become a problem and interfering with school was when I started using the meth um, because that, that really pushed to a whole new level. And that happened around 16. Yes. I started using meth. I think it was about a week or two before I was 16. And then I started shooting meth when I, when I was 17, the summer between my junior and senior year of high school, I became an IV speed user. And after that, I mostly shot up. And so it became a big problem my senior year. That, and in those days from, again, correct me if I'm wrong, shooting, I mean, not that shooting up isn't a big deal, but you, you have, it is more common for people to do it now than it was. And it certainly is more common now than it was even when I was a teenager. Yeah. So mostly previously shooting up was heroin addicts only. Right. right? Well, I was, this now for me in high school is the mid seventies and there was a meth boom. So in Pennsylvania, these um, biker gangs had figured out uh, how to efficiently manufacture meth. And so it really sort of came into the area in volume for the first time ever. And most people just just uh, snorted it. I actually didn't see anybody smoking until I went into rehab and somebody there told me that they were smoking meth. I hadn't heard about that. But people mostly snorted it. But the real hardcore group of which right. I eagerly joined. Yes, um, yes. <laughs> of course. Uh, are you taking new members? <laughs> That's right. Exactly right. Oh, a new high. All right. I'm in. Yeah, exactly. You know? so, um, so yeah, I mean, I would say of the 
most of the meth users were probably casual weekend meth users. And then there was a group that was more serious about it and had an actual, you know, problem with it. And then there were the people who were shooting it. And I was in that, in that elevated. Yes. <laughs> the 1%. Yes. yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> did So how did you get, so you're on the East coast and you go to Berkeley. How did you find out about Berkeley and, and how, how did you get yourself over there? So I actually, um, I went to UCLA first and then I transferred to Berkeley. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, when I, when I was looking for colleges, I used to get bronchitis in the winter. And so I was looking for a high academic college that didn't have snow in the winter. And if you think Mm. about it, there aren't that many. Um, a lot of them are in the East Coast and they and they're, they have winter. And I didn't want to go to a school where they had winter. So I ended up at UCLA for that reason. And then I transferred to Berkeley for my junior year and I gra- ended up graduating from Berkeley. You do know that UCLA is five years, number one public university. <laughs> and Berkeley is number two now, don't you? It depends on which list you look at. I just saw oh, Berkeley no. was... <laughs> <laughs> Berkeley was number one in the world for public universities. So it depends on what list, <laughs> but they are both uh, excellent schools. I think we can agree. They are both excellent yes, schools. Yes, yes. Um, and, and for me, you know, with the drug thing, because by the, I really, they shouldn't actually have let me graduate because I missed so many days of school my senior year. I just could not get there because, you know, I was on a, a up for a couple of days, crash, up for a couple of days, crash. And, but they let me make up work. I gave them a sob story about, you know, family problems. Not that that wasn't true, but that wasn't really the core of reason <laughs> I wasn't going to school. I mean, if you link it back all the way to the drug, I mean, you could make a full case study on it, but yes. Yeah, it wasn't the, the immediate short-term immediate, reason. Yeah. Um, and so I did, I did graduate. And then when I went to, to UCLA, I, I did do better. I did better from from the you age went back of, to UCLA when I went there the first when I left New Jersey and went to college my drug use was better for about three years and okay. between 16 and 32 when I went to rehab the best years I had were the first three years of college I mean I used and I abused but I mostly didn't use meth and I mostly used on the weekend and so because you say how could I have done it well I, I was able to handle school but I don't I couldn't have done college at the level that I was using you know on my on my last day of high school you know that would it have been didn't. impossible it didn't help you study and you weren't using it as a, I mean, you know, I don't know, double, double, double whammy there. No. Well, it, you know, I, I didn't use it to study. I used it mostly out of the house. I only went home when I had to, to sleep or to avoid getting in even more trouble. So no, I wasn't using it as a study tool. I was using it as a numbing tool. I mean, right. all, all of the drugs numbed me to a certain degree, but well, it was both. First, they made me happy. I mean, when I had that first drink, I was giddy with happiness, right? The first time I started speed, I was, you know, ecstatic. I mean, mm-hmm. adrenaline running through my body was a, to me, it was a happy, wonderful day, you know, to find something that fabulous. But over time, the the joy of it gets lost. And yeah. at best, it's the numbing of it. Um, yes. And so that's what it had turned into was just the numbing, the, the use of it as a numbing agent. And if it impacted school, I did my best to try to have it not impact school. But luckily, you know, how does your senior year, the second half of your senior year, you're already accepted to college, right? And mm-hmm. so my grades did drop some, but I was able to manage it to pass everything and then go to college. From college or the graduate, when you graduated college to 32, when you did enter rehab, 
what did your life look like and how did you get to the point where, because I mean, that's actually a significant period of time to have been shooting any type of drugs to be able to make it through where someone doesn't <laughs> incarcerate you in one way or another. Yeah. So, so my senior year of college, I moved in with an abusive boyfriend and that was really what now, now I had also had two significant rapes in my late teens, which was making it, you know, emotionally difficult for me to keep focus, but, and just sort of reinforce the PTSD that I didn't even know that I had. Right. Uh, and I, and I was abusing to a degree, but not that much, but then I moved in with an abusive boyfriend my senior year. And then, and that just got out of control. So I turned to my, you know, my, my known remedy, which mm -hmm. was meth. I found meth again and I started abusing meth seriously in January of my senior year. And so that's when it went off the cliff again. And the next 10 years, I mean, professionally, I the short term of that is I worked my way down the corporate ladder, right? <laughs> so, because I couldn't hold the job. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't get there on time. Jobs, the length of time I had a job was shorter and shorter. Right. But, 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 but separate from that, I was just physically and emotionally deteriorating. By the time I went to rehab, my body was breaking down. I was having a lot of physical problems on multiple levels. And I was just, you know, hopeless. My life, I was trying to, I was creating chaos. I didn't even really understand that it was all my creation. It was just, how do these things keep happening to me? Trouble finds me. <laughs> I was with the man who's now my husband and uh, he he didn't realize how bad it was until I moved in with him. And then, you know, it got worse and worse and worse. But you know how it is. Sometimes you have a short period where it looks like you're doing a little better. Mm -hmm. It looks like you're a little better control, but you can't hang on to that. Right. And so that's what it was like, like for me. So I really did use meth for those, you know, from college until I went into rehab. Meth was my primary drug by far through that entire period. I abused it at a significant level every week during that entire period. And I was really collapsing by the time I was 32 years old. Absolutely. I mean, the, the methamphetamine has an incredible amount of toxic chemicals, you know, compared to someone who even, even heroin has, you know, a preservative effect and it's really opiates are, are, it's really what's they're doctored with that tend to be people get, you know, it's, it's the dirty needles. It's the, it's whatever's added to it, but meth in and of itself, it is, is an extremely, extremely toxic chemical. So the fact that you're able to, you know, even manage for that period of time is pretty, pretty incredible. How did you find this rehab? Who put you into rehab or suggested that you go? Well, my husband had been getting, and I say husband because he's husband now, but right. uh, he had been getting, you know, he was getting to the end of his rope. And I, is and this I, abusive boyfriend? No, I left no, him. Is, okay. I, yes. Yeah. So that abusive boyfriend I left at the end of my senior year, but by then I was already six months into my new, you know, phase two of my meth addiction. Right. Um, <laughs> and, and then the guy who I moved in with a few years later, he's a, he's a nice guy and he knew I use drugs, but he had no idea at the level because I usually just saw him on the weekend. And so, you know, I, I just would drop casual comments about, Oh man, it's been a week. It's so nice to get high again or, you know, something. Right, like right, right, right. Exactly. Exactly. Like, no, I haven't been 
been using it every day since I last saw you or, or sleeping at all. One or the mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> um, Not mentioning the people in the room with all of you that you're hallucinating. <laughs> yes. Well, there was that. So he was getting, he was getting really near the end and I could see it. And he, before he, you know, it would come to a head and I would convince him, I would find the way to take a little bit of a break or do less. And he didn't really understand addiction either. So he really thought it was sort of like, I was just choosing to keep on Mm -hmm. using. Therefore I could just choose tomorrow not to, he just Mm -hmm. didn't really get it. And so I would, you know, get a new job and start paying my share of the bills again for a while. And that would maybe ease the stress a little, or I would do a little bit better on my using or hide it better. (laughs) Sometimes it was Mm -hmm. just hiding it better. And then it would sort of calm down. But by the time I was 32, he was really at the end of his rope and I knew it. And so my last ditch effort to not get kicked out of the house was, well, what if I go to rehab? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. You got to do it. It takes what it takes. It takes what it takes. So you go, you go to rehab. And what's interesting about this is you go to a pro. So for people who don't know, not all treatment centers, not all rehabs are based on 12 steps um, of Alcoholics Anonymous or other 12 step programs. There's, there's ones that are based on therapeutic modalities like Lion Rock is cognitive behavioral therapy. So you have a lot of different modalities. Um, we, we spoke to Dr. Jason on Ask the Expert who they use positive psychology at uh, their treatment center. So again, you have these different ones. You end up at a 12-step based program and you are an atheist at this time. Yes. Yeah, so that's going to be, that's going to be our, now, now I will say one thing is that Alcoholics Anonymous, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous does say that they have acceptance for atheists and that there's a way to do that. And there, there is literature in the book and in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12-step about that. But if we're being honest, it's a, you know, sticky wicket, as they would say. Yes. So I I was looking for a rehab and I, you know, I didn't have much money, so it had to be a certain cost level. And, and it was weird too. At the time there was this dual addiction emphasis. I think that's where their funding was coming from. And so every time I would uh, find a rehab, they would say, well, what else are you addicted to besides meth? And at first I said, well, nothing. I haven't, you know, rarely use anything else. Well, you don't fit our program. And plus at the time there weren't that many women's programs or that would take women, you know, even if it was with both gen um, sexes and uh, uh, both at the time, that's how we thought about it. But Finally, down Chrysalis, and I just lied, and I said my second drug was alcohol <laughs> because I was tired of getting rejected. Right, so I, I lied to get in, and I, am, you I mean, lied I lied to just, get into rehab. I love it. Oh man, we're just a, we're just a great bunch. Yeah, yeah, I lied, and then, uh, and so in my mind, what I was going for was medical treatment. You know, that I, I had a medical problem and I needed medical help. And so that was what I thought I was going into. And when I interviewed with them, they never said anything and they never asked me any questions that to determine if I would be a good fit for a 12-step program. They asked me questions about my using history, you know, things along those, how I was going to pay, you know, things along those lines. So I go into, I go there and on the first day that I was there, every day they would do in the morning, uh, they would do a step. So you would 
read the step and read through the big book, you know, explanation of the step or the NA book explanation of the step and then talk about it. And it happened to be that my first date was step three, you know, made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as we understand him. I think that's the right terminology. Yep. Yep. And, um, and so I'm listening. And so, you know, being the good student that I am, I raised my hand, you know, Hey, um, so, um, what about me? I'm an atheist and I don't believe. And, and they said, they did say, doesn't have to be God can be any kind of higher power. And I said, but I'm an atheist. I don't believe in any kind of higher power. And they said, well, you have to, if you, you will, you will relapse if you don't turn your will and your life over to a higher power. And I looked at her and I said, you just told me I can't stay clean. <laughs> you know, like it was bizarre to me that this was what I was being told on day one. And they hammered me with that afterward, that that I really had to accept every, not just the higher power. I didn't agree with the powerlessness. There were other parts of the 12 steps I had concerns about. They told me that really this was the only way. And if I did not comply, I was doomed to fail. Now, they did at one point point to that agnostic chapter in the big book. And so they said, oh, well, you know, by the way, there's this agnostic chapter. And I was like, Mm -hmm. well, why didn't you tell me that before? So I ran and I read it, but it's actually just a weak argument as to why you shouldn't be an agnostic. It wasn't really focused on how someone without a higher power could actually do this program, right? It still had to, you still had to follow those 12 steps. And they would tell me things like, my best thinking got me there. And, you know, in other words, you shouldn't think for yourself. And I remember I would always say, I promise you, it wasn't my best thinking. (laughs) (laughs) They told me that I was running on self-will, that I was being arrogant, all of these messages. it, It was really a stunner to me to find that I was only being offered one way and that that way was something that wasn't going to work for me. So it was a real shocker to find that that was the situation that I was in. And, you know, it's interesting because I I went to a lot of different treatment centers, um, one of which a long-term one I went to was 12-step and and I am a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and have been for a long time. And, you know, it's so funny. I have this story, a, a girlfriend of mine, who I went to college with, she um, came into the program for a little bit, same kind of deal. She's, you know, n- no higher power. And I said, well, let's just anything greater than yourself. Let's just try. And she, uh, she, we still laugh about this today. She goes, uh, I guess the government's greater than <laughs> myself. And I was like, yeah, you can't pray to the government. But I just, I, I take it back. But, you know, it is, it is something that depending on where you are and who you are and what your background is, you know, the messages for, you know, the messages can, can be demotivating. Right. And, and so it's about, it's about finding what works for you in any way, you know, I say like whatever gets you to the plate, the point is to be happy and enjoy it and, and, and be healthy. Uh, the point, the goal isn't to be the, you know, the, the longest term in, in a 12 step program, the goal is to, to be sober in whatever way makes sense for you. You, you had to stay there a long time, it sounds like, and, but you were able to find other modalities. How did, how did they come out 
So first, I, I mean, I, I did stay. I, I as I was really, I mean, as I said, I was in horrible shape, and so I I was supposed. To, I think it was a minimum of a sixty day or ninety day commitment, but then they said, you know, you really ought to stay longer, and I did end up staying for five months because I really needed to be away and to 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 get what I could out of it. So so my first thought after after they're telling me I have to do it their way, what what I did a couple things. One is that I went through all of the steps to try to find is there anything of value for mm-hmm. me here? And so, and I remember I wrote them out each one. And so for powerless, for example, I really didn't believe I was powerless, but I did, I was able to agree that I was powerless to moderate, right? Like Mary right, Beth right, like, right. cannot right. moderate. Okay. Some things that were, they were clear. Yep. Okay. <laughs> That's hundred percent clear. The step three, turn my will in my life. I used that. I wrote it up as um, as a lesson in limited control. So you know, for example, if I was looking for a job, you know, I could go through the one ads people in those days, the hard copy newspaper one ads. I could do a resume. I could do my best, but I couldn't control the outcome, and that that was true in a lot of areas. So I tried to look at it from that perspective. So I I went through the steps to just see what is a can, can I use? What can I agree with? What can I apply? And then, and then we did have classes and there were ideas there that I thought were useful. I mean, I did agree that I was, you know, addicted, as we said in those days, and that I couldn't use any drug or alcohol. They encouraged us to develop clean and sober relationships. That sounded like a good idea. So I tried to do that. They taught us a techniques to how to handle and avoid triggers. There was valuable information there. Um, I, I even pulled ideas out of 12-step meetings, not not higher power or powerless, but things like one day at a time. I found that to be a useful concept when I was struggling and really, you know, felt the compulsion to try to use to just convince myself, just not today. I'm not deciding for tomorrow. Today, I'm not going to pick up. Um, I actually... I found some value even in the 12 step, um, cause I had to go to a lot of 12 step meetings, of course, especially cause that's all they, there was, they said, but, um, like the drug logs in 12 steps, I know a lot of people struggle with those and aren't, you know, thrilled with them. But for me in the beginning, they actually, I found value there because people would be giving their share and they're telling their, you know, chaotic, drug history story and it was similar to mine and yet they're standing before me and they have six months or a year or two years they look healthy they're putting their life back together they've got a job again they're paying off their debt they're you know getting visitation with their children. And so that started to give me hope because when I went into, when I went into rehab, I actually didn't believe I could stop. I was trying to figure out how to use less. Like that was my goal. Yeah. Not that I wanted to keep using, but because that was the best I could imagine. So seeing people succeed, even if it was under a program that wasn't a great fit for me, it did give me hope that if they could do it, then maybe I can do it too. And so I did try to grab all of the ideas and information that I thought would be useful for me as an individual. And that was the first, my sort of my first effort to try to make it work for me in an environment that wasn't a a great fit for me. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, it's Ashley Joe, producer of The Courage to Change, and I wanted to chime in and let you know about our new mobile app, 
Lion Rock Life. It is now available for download on your phone or tablet from the App Store or the Google Play Store. So here's the download on the app. The app is designed to streamline your online recovery experience, allowing you to view live meetings in progress, join meetings quickly, and build stronger connections in recovery. So whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're in recovery for something other than drugs or alcohol, the Lion Rock Life mobile app has a space for you. On the app, you'll find alternative recovery meetings and traditional meeting offerings. We have everything from recovery fellowship to community workshops, LGBTQIA+, women's meetings, men's meetings, 12-step meetings, and more. With over 75 meetings on our weekly schedule, you'll find a meeting that meets your individual needs. And with the app, you can personalize your recovery experience, join with privacy in mind, and recover with the support of an incredible community. Join us and find inspiration for a lifetime of recovery by downloading the Lion Rock Life mobile app today. If you have questions or need help, simply visit lionrock.life slash mobile dash app. Thanks. It's interesting, you know, for I, so I went to Catholic school for eight years and, um, and I'm not Catholic and, uh, and, you know, my dad's Jewish mom's Protestant and I would, you know, we'd go to Episcopal church and, so I had a lot of exposure to different gods and different types of belief systems. And when I got to AA and they were like, this is what's going to save your life. I'm like, oh, I'm screwed. Like this is, this is what's going to see. This is, this is your best plan. I'm shooting heroin. This is your best option for me. I'm, I'm totally fucked. And, uh, you know what they told me, and this is kind of the thing that you intuitively found, which I think is really cool. Uh, cause I did not intuitively take this with me was, take what you like and leave the rest, God, good orderly direction. So for me, God, for as, you know, as long as, as it took, God was good orderly direction and good orderly direction or great outdoors was your version of the, the help wanted ads, right? Good orderly direction is I go to the help wanted ads because I, I do the footwork needed for the outcome. And I follow the directions that are laid out in front of me without Ashley's harebrained ideas, because I need to set a foundation of learning how to do things the way they're supposed to be done before I go innovating, right? <laughs> Adding my own information to it. And so good orderly direction, taking, you know, taking all the pieces of 12 step that are valuable and applying those. And for me, interesting, like the way that I actually live my program is very similar to what you described, which is I just ignore the stuff. There's lots of stuff in there that I don't agree with or like, and, um, that I cringe when I hear reading or that, you know, and, and my brain, because it was, I have to, I'm going to die if I don't do this or something worse than death. My brain stayed going long enough. That was like, okay, I got to find a way to take this valuable stuff. And that's what you, you know, that's what you did. And people showed me how to do that. But what I say to people nowadays when we have other options and support group programs is that is an exercise 
that is a mental, you're jumping through mental, you know, you're doing mental gymnastics there if it's a struggle for you. And sometimes when you're getting sober, you don't have the space for mental gymnastics. You don't have the wherewithal. You don't have the time. You don't have the the grace period, the the, the risk. So I, I think um, it's pretty, really impressive that you were able to do that and also telling of, of things to come in your life. But it is, it is a way that many people manage to, to function within a framework that, that, troubles them. Yeah. And I don't in any way want to, you know, disrespect the 12 steps because yeah. they work for a lot of people. My, my only concern is when anyone says that 12 steps is the only way or a better way, because neither one of those statements is true. And it can be actually dangerous to tell people that there's only one way because it's not going to be a fit for everyone. And so to me, the better message is here's this program that worked for me and here's why I found it valuable and why I think it might be valuable for you. But there's also these other options. And I suggest you look into all of them and see which one you think will be the right fit. That to me is the is the approach where we are prioritizing the health and success of the individual standing before us. How did you find these other? So you found, I think, Life Ring, She Recovers, SOS, Rational Recovery, which is now SMART. How did you find these? So at about six months, I went to the library because there was no, this is 94, there's no, you know, publicly available internet. And I went to see, they had, everyone had told me both at meetings and in rehab, there is no other option. That's what they told me repeatedly. So I thought, well, first of all, it seemed unlikely to me that no atheist in the history of the world had ever gotten sober. Okay. Like I just found it hard to believe that that was true. So there maybe there are other, other options. So I went to the library to look. And what I found in the recovery section was just 12-step materials, but I had gained weight because I was a meth addict and now I was sober. So I picked up this weight loss book and in the index in the back, it mentioned women for sobriety as an a secular alternative, no, as an alternative to 12 steps, a recovery alternative to 12 steps. And right away, that really caught my attention. Women for sobriety, an option, it actually exists. They they were wrong when they said there was no option. There was at least one. And so I, I either had to call the 800 number or I had to write to the PO box to ask for the materials. And I got the books and I went, there was a local meeting and I started going to Women for Sobriety. That's what I found first. And so I, I, I still remember when I walked in WFS to the first meeting. First of all, at the time, WFS was just alcohol. It's not now, but it was then. And so I, I went to the leader and I said, you know, I'm a meth addict. Is it, am I welcome here? You know, I'm, uh, and she said, absolutely. We understand, you know, your addiction is just like ours. It's just a different substance. So it was like, that's a relief. I'm allowed yeah. to participate. Right. right. Um, and then in, well, in WFS, you introduce yourself instead of saying, I'm Mary Beth and I'm an addict. You say, I'm Mary Beth and I'm a competent woman. That's the introduction. And mm. that just like gave me goosebumps. I mean, that just felt like a powerful, assertive statement that really, was better aligned with where I was at the time. When I first introduced myself, I'm Mary Beth, I'm an addict, I actually didn't mind it because I thought I needed to sort of beat that in my brain, you know, hard for a while. But by this point, it didn't feel quite right. Yes, I mean, I was only at six months. Yes, I have an addiction history recent, but 
I'm way more than an addict. And so I wasn't happy with introducing myself that way, that my substance use disorder was a part of me, but it wasn't really who I was to say I am as if this is the crux, the essence of who I am felt wrong to me by that point. So to say I'm Mary Beth and I'm a competent woman, although I might not have fully agreed with the competent part yet. (laughs) It was a positive assertion and it was, it was more aligned with where I felt that I was headed. Right, right, right. I love that. I love that. And, uh, and I love that you, you were like, there has to be something else and went to the library and looked because, you know, again, that's, it's, it's interesting. It's very telling about who you are as a person and, and, and the things to come because you end up, you know, your story ends up, you're, you stay sober and you um, are involved in these, these organizations and you become a judge. And all of that is quote unquote, seemingly impossible for a woman, a drug addict, you know, a, someone who starts at 32, like all of the things seemingly impossible that that would happen. And your reaction to seemingly impossible is it's not impossible. And I'm going to do it. I'm going to find it. Your reaction to this is impossible is watch me. Right. And so I dig that. I get that. I, and it's, it's, you know, again, when you're describing when you're describing like saying I'm a competent woman and what that felt like to say, I'm, I'm Mary Beth, I'm an addict. For me, I needed to say I'm Ashley, I'm an alcoholic because I was so freaked out when I got sober by my behavior that I needed to hone in on the fact that I wasn't extraordinarily mentally ill. I was terrified of getting sober because I was, because I had gotten so wrapped up in substances and warped so deeply that I was actually, it was actually a relief to me to say that, that, that thing, because it removed this even more difficult belief that I had about myself that basically was, no, you're not, you're not competent, sober, not sober. And this, this focus for me on addiction was this isn't, this is creating these other things, but I can see, you know, depending on where you are in your journey and who you are and what those things are, you know, I can, I totally get how that could be feel like, geez, you know, is that the only thing I am? Is that the only thing I got sober at 19? It really kind of was the only thing I was doing. I had going on at that time, but you know, I mean that this is the story, right? This is the story is what are the options for people? Are we just going to tell, are we just okay with people saying, well, that doesn't work for me. So I guess I'm going to go use drugs and die. I mean, that's what we've been saying. Yeah. And that's why I was so shocked when they told me that the first day, I mean, they literally told me I would fail. So that was, that was a big shocker. And, and I, and as to your point about the, the mental health side of it, I I too stayed in my uh, addiction a long time because I believed that if I stopped, I was either going to commit suicide or end up in a mental institution. I really thought I would, I was going to snap that this was the only thing that was keeping me alive. And that was a deep held belief. It was wrong, but I did. And and I don't think it was a pure justification. I really felt that I knew I was holding all that trauma at bay. Right. Barely right. We didn't know what it. it was. No, no. Barely holding it at bay, barely functioning. And that this was the best, I believe, in my meth addiction was the best I could do. Like there, anything else would be worse. And stopping was going to create just 
other problems, suicide or mental institution. That's really what I thought was going to happen to me. So it was nice to be wrong about that. In fact, I remember in rehab, they had us do an occupational therapy test. And when I got my IQ test back, it was such a friggin' relief <laughs> because it was basically the same as it had always been. Right. And even though I thought I had fried my brain and my brain was fried in the sense of, you know, until the drugs got out of my system and it right. was certainly wired for addiction. In fact, Part of the reason that it was such a struggle when they told me I had to do it the 12-step way, part of the dilemma for me was because I knew my brain was not operating at optimal at that point in time. I, I was in rehab a few days, even weeks or months. I knew that my brain had been making poor decisions <laughs> for 20 years, and now I have to decide, am I going to believe them that it's just this one way that won't work? Or am I going to trust my own judgment, judgment that hasn't, that doesn't have a good track record in my recent past, right? So that was part of the struggle of trying to make the decision as to what to do when I was being told to do something that I couldn't. And that, again, really put me in a an avoidable and unnecessary conflict when all they really had to do was go to the library and see if there are <laughs> options. Find the weight loss section. <laughs> I love or, it. Or, you know, ask somebody. And so, yeah, it, but that's what it was. So WFS, which was, it's a, as competent woman suggests, it's about self-empowerment. It's about releasing the past. It's believing that, you know, in positive thinking and taking control of your life. And, and in fact, Jean Kirkpatrick, the founder of WFS, she believed that that the 12 step idea that people coming into early recovery have too big an egos, that they need to be deflated, that this is part of the ration, rationale behind the powerlessness idea, the turning your will on your life over the focus on character defects. She actually believed that for most women, they weren't walking into recovery with too big an egos. They were walking into recovery beaten down and they needed to be built up. And so that was, that's why the WFS program is focused around that building you up into a competent woman, helping you, helping you grow into your own competence, helping you, helping you, helping you trust your own ability to make decisions for yourself, helping you. I mean, they have principles, you know, statements and, and guidance and ideas. And I, I read all that and I considered all of that, but it's really about helping you gain that sense of competency so that you can move forward in your life and trust yourself. How did you proceed from there and, and take us to finding these you know, programs and, and also building a legal career? at 32, right? Yeah. So, so after WFS, I found Rational Recovery, which is now SMART and their mm -hmm. focus is on relapse prevention. And they, they say that you can, with your free will, you can actually succeed in recovery. So that was a good idea for me. And then I found SOS, Secular Organization for Sobriety, which basically today is Life Ring. Life Ring broke off of SOS in 97. They are also an, a self-empowerment, rational decision-making program. So I read I mean, as you would imagine, I read all the materials of all of mm -hmm. these programs. I went to all these meetings and I just pulled out. I never ended up feeling like I was one program or the other. Mm -hmm. I really just kept the way I had started in rehab, which was to take ideas, what, what I thought would work for me and try to synthesize them and use them in a way that would help me build a strong recovery foundation. And so that's what I did for the first 15 to 18 months, I can't remember now, every day after I got home from rehab, mm -hmm. every day I either went to 
one of my meetings or another, or I went to therapy, individual or couples, because, you know, yeah. <laughs> I needed both. <laughs> so every, every day for 15 to 18 months, I did one or the other. And that was really helpful to me because it kept me busy in the, in the evening, right? Which is a, is a good goal. And it helped, and there, I learned other ideas in therapy, right? I mean, there yeah. was, that was another source right. of information and ideas. And I did have trauma that needed to be addressed that I really had no clue how deep it was or how much it was impacting me. And so all of that was going on. But, but as to the 32 part, I really felt old. You know, I felt old. I felt like I'm 32 years old. I basically have just a broken resume, a cho- the choppiest of resumes. I kept, you know, as I said, next job, less responsibility, held on to it for less time. Next job, even less responsibility, held on. Down the corporate ladder. Down that corporate ladder. My last job for rehab, and I'm a Berkeley graduate with good grades. I was doing word processing and I could only hang on for nine months because I couldn't get there. You know, I missed too many days. I remember when I interviewed for that job, I was really happy with it because in the bathroom, each stall had a silver shelf where I could put my spoon and prepare my shot. Like that was why that was a, a good workspace, mm-hmm. for, a good mm-hmm. workplace for me, a nice shelf to prepare my shot. I totally get that. <laughs> I totally said that that's, I mean, that's the beauty of like, you know, it's the funny part of recovery and being, it's like our brains, you know, when, when that's your focus, these are the way you think about these things. And it, it's, it's, it's very common, right? It's very, it's, it's, it's universal almost. Yes. I mean, our brains are just so hyper-focused on everything related to our addiction and to making our lives easier as using addicts, right? But but I'm sober and I'm 32 and I felt like I've wasted my degree. I've, you know, how am I ever going to get a real job with this choppy work history? You know, I'm just walking into it feeling very weak and vulnerable and very nervous about having to go back out into the workforce again. It was it was it was a challenge. I was I was afraid. And I, I was embarrassed really to have to try to explain the gaps and, you know, and all of that. Um, So it was, it was a struggle. I don't want to make it sound like it was boom, everything went along well. It was, it was a struggle. So my first job when I got home was a temporary part-time low-level administrative job because that's all I could handle. Yeah, (laughs) That's where I was. For me to get up every day and get a shower and go to work and stay the whole day that I'm supposed to be there and do a good job and do that again the next day, I was 32 and I had never done that in my entire life. It was new behavior. And that's Mary Beth. I want to just point out to you know people who are listening who are you know trying to get sober. It's so much better to go out and get that job. I too, I, I'm, I'm embarrassed to tell you some of the jobs I had, but it's so much better to go out and get that job and master the basics of that job. If you, yes, you were UC Berkeley grad. If you had gone out and gotten a bigger job and failed at it because you couldn't master the getting, you may have been really great at the high level stuff, but the, the getting up and going and showering and showing up, if you don't master those basics, you can't take the next step. And so sometimes we call it the get well job, but it's so important to get the job that will build the habits you need later on and to get the job you can handle and not the job you think you want to be able to handle at some point. It's just set yourself up for success. 
I think that's exactly right. And it, and it also didn't require total use of my brain. So right. I was able to focus on my recovery. You know, right. I was able to spend time reading and going to these meetings and there wasn't yeah. a, a conflict because I had, I had the, the bandwidth and my, my focus on this to figure this stuff out for myself. So it was valuable on multiple fronts. And I, I mean, not everyone has the option to work part-time financially like I did. So I was lucky that my um, husband supported, he was happy for me to be having any job you know <laughs> right exactly um, uh, so that was my that was my getting back that was my getting back in the workforce and then my, my next job was a full-time sort of um office manager job at a small software company and then they promoted me and gave me uh, the bookkeeping duties as well and then my next job i worked at a, a, a fairly large large ish uh not gigantic but large ish tech company and I was a high level executive administrator at that company and I got a promotion. My last job before law school, which I'm sure we'll talk about, was I was the customer su service supervisor at a semiconductor test equipment company. <laughs> but that was a job of responsibility. I managed people yeah. and I managed process and I interacted with a lot of different departments. But it took me, let's see, I, I started the administrative job there at about three and a half years. And then I got the promotion at around four and a half years. Um, so, you know, it, it took a while. Each step I had to settle in, as you say, right. pick up those skills. And then luckily in both jobs, I was able to get promoted within for the, for the next step and then move out and just be part of, part of what I, I, when I talk to newbies, when I talk about um, strategies for success is just accepting of that sort of incremental improvement idea, yes. right? In yes. all areas. Mastery. Yes. Mastery. And I mean, in early recovery, I think we all want, you know, six months, you know, maybe a year and everything's going to be as if we had never picked up a drug in our life. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. As if we had just started, <laughs> you know, what, what amazes me and, and I hear this in your story, my, I'm really great in high intensity, traumatic, complex, high thinking, imaginative scenarios. You put me in my day-to-day -day life of like, make your bed, show up, you know, like manage to pay the bill on time. Like the, 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 the monotonous stuff and the basics, that's where I struggle. I struggle with the basics. I struggle with the foundation. And when it gets up higher, my brain gets excited and my brain likes excitement and my brain wants to do that. But as I get down, but the problem is if you don't master those, those things, what I have found in, you know, almost 16 years of recovery is that if you don't master those, those things, you, you'll move up. You'll, ask, you'll have this deficit pulling you down the whole time. And it's just, you know, your, your, your point of mastering these skills, engaging in the processes, engaging in, you know, uh, managing people and all those things to help you build on will, will create much more success, even though it's slower, much more success than if you get to the top and you realize you have this huge deficit and it's so uncomfortable. That's true. And people can get deficits in other areas of their life if they overly focus on any one, right? So that's right. part of it as well. If you're pushing really hard in one area, it, sometimes you're ignoring other areas and it's going to bite you in the butt later, at, you know, at some point or another. Yep. How did you decide to go to law? How old were you when you went to law school? I started when I was 39. I started when I was 39. So this is pretty remarkable in that, you know, especially during the time right now, I think 
you know, when I went back to school, so I, I, I went back to school, I was, you know, a handful of years older than everybody. That was pretty normal. We had, we had people in, you know, in undergrad who were older students and, and definitely in law school and in, in business school. I'm in, I'm finishing up my, my um, MBA right now. And I'm in, you know, my, thank you. And uh, my, um, my classmates are, I mean, all the way up into their late fifties, this, that is much more common. But when you were going back at 39 to law school, particularly, I don't think that that was a very common thing. No. So Berkeley, where I went to to law school as well, um, the 15% of the class was 30 and over. And most of them were 30, 31, 32, right? (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We needed a 35 and over uh, (laughs) statistic. Um, so it was relatively uh, unusual and it was frightening in, in a, in a lot of ways because I hadn't done an academics in such a long period right. of time. Oh, yeah. Um, on the other hand, what happened for me really was that what I realized in the job that I was at as that customer service supervisor, I looked ahead and I didn't really want my boss's job or my boss's right. boss's job, right. which tells me I'm in the wrong place, right? I'm right. in the wrong place. And so, you know, but law school is a financial commitment uh, mm-hmm. and it's a time commitment. And so it was, it was a debate for a while, but in the long run, there are some advantages to being an older student as well. Oh, absolutely. So, okay. I had my personal life settled. I was with my, you know, at that point, actual husband, we actually had gotten married. And, and so that I wasn't trying to negotiate relationships in school at the same right. time. Um, I did have years of professional positive progression mm-hmm. behind me. I had good habits. And so I was able to go to law school and build a schedule for myself, you know, whether no matter what time of day it was, I always went to school at the same time. For one thing, I lived about 25 miles away and in Russia, that was, it was a, it was like a 40, 45 minute commute. So I would go up no matter what time class I went up first thing in the morning, first of all, so I could have a parking space. Cause they gave out more parking mm-hmm. passes than there yep. were space. Yep. They still do. Um, and so, so if I had class, I had class. And if I didn't, I studied until I, I had class and I would go home and I would study and I studied on the weekend. So I had a very um, methodical approach to law school, which benefited me. There wasn't any, there wasn't really any distraction in a way. I was able to focus on my academics and law school is, you know, cha- really challenging in a, in a new way um, from just going t- to college. And so that was helpful. So being older did, even though I felt, you know, a little bit like an old lady at 39, uh, it did, I, there were some advantages to being an older Absolutely. student. Absolutely. And, and when you got through law school and you started to practice, you know, in, in this story, right. And it's kind of woven into this story is you're a woman in recovery. And one thing I hear from a lot of professionals is this conversation around the discomfort of, and, and frankly, I've experienced it. How do I tell, like, do I tell people, do I bring it up? Is it going to hurt me? You know, what does being a person in recovery, what role in the conversation of who I am does that play when I'm trying to have this professional career? How does it fit into the corporate America structure? And curious, how did you know where how did you talk about it or if you talked about it? I, I really didn't talk about it at work. Yeah. Um, I really didn't, not until later when I was a judge and I was on the board of, of Life Ring. Um, so 
I, it's interesting because I actually would be, if I was starting to develop a friendship with someone at work, I would actually be more likely to reveal the abuse history than I would the drug history, right? <laughs> um, because that's less judged upon uh, by right. society. That was really right. out of my control. I mean, you know, things yeah. that was a safer thing. So I, I still didn't disclose that very much. I don't want to give the impression I went around with the banner, you know, a, a, yeah. a abuse victim, but, but that I would share that much more often. I don't remember ever sharing at least, at least in the first 10 years that I was wow. in recovery to anybody that I worked with, even if I was having lunch with them or view them, even if someone else mentioned that their family member was ha having mm. a struggle, I might say that addiction ran in my family, that I had some knowledge about it, but I wouldn't reveal myself because I didn't know what the reaction would be. Yeah. And it did feel a bit like I was, and I would I, I have journals when I've just recently finished my memoir and I went through my journals at the time. And I do talk about, you know, sometimes it's difficult breaking myself into pieces. I'm this at work, you know, yeah. I, I don't yeah. talk about this. And then my personal life, I'm, I'm different. And that is a challenge, but it, it can be, it just felt like it was too big a risk. And once, once I said it, I felt like I couldn't put the genie back in the bottle. So it was just safer not doing so. So for a long time, I didn't say anything about being in recovery. What changed after that 10 years? Well, it wasn't, I, the, it was, I don't even know that it was then. I may have mentioned to a couple people after that, um, maybe, or, and you know, when they would find out work friends who left the job, <laughs> Once they left my workplace yeah, yeah, yeah. and went somewhere else, right. then I would view the friendship in a different category right. and I could be more open about those things. But when, so I, I graduated law school uh, in 2003 and I worked at a big law firm that does like big corporate cases. I was a litigator. I did um, complex business litigation, class action work uh, in Silicon Valley, which is where I lived. And then I went to the federal government and became a lawyer because I wanted a better work-life balance than that. And so that was, I did class action, mostly, I did a lot of things, but one of the things I did also was class action work for the government. And then I became a judge, uh, administrative law judge for, for the federal government in 2014. And once, um, I, then I, I joined the board for Lifering in okay. 2016 or 17, I can't remember. And because I was a judge, I have to run outside activities through ethics. I have to tell them if I'm doing an mm. outside activity. And so for the first time, I really did have to say, you know, that, that I was in recovery. So I filled out the form, you know, that they have you felt. And I, and I, you know, said what I would be doing for the organization, you know, on the board, speaking, things like that. Um, and I mentioned in there that I had 27 years. Well, it wasn't 27 at the time. Maybe it was 22 or something years of sobriety. And that's all I said. I didn't say methamphetamine or anything along those. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, fair. <laughs> uh, <assuming laughs> they thought alcohol or maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, so yeah. that, that was the, and that was a big moment for me to be, because it, it went, that form had to go to my direct supervisor, then the head of the, the head judge in the region, and then through ethics and, and back again. So there were people, my superior and superior, another level above her were, were seeing this. Um, so it was a big moment for me to do that. And once I did that, and I knew that she knew, it sort of released the ice for me. And I would say things occasionally, even to 
other people about being in recovery. I wouldn't go into details or anything, but I would be more open to mentioning it if it was in a conversation or um, if we were discussing, you know, the rules of substance use disorder in the law that we had to apply or something along those lines. I was more likely at that point to say something about it. So it was it was pretty late on that I did. And and I don't know if that's just me. I, I, you know, the, one of the ripples of my upbringing is a, a distrust sometimes of the world, right? So in part, there is still that self-protective instinct. Yeah. And so I think it's part of the reason I just didn't want to take the risk. I just didn't want to take the risk part of that. But I, but I did have to do it when I was a judge. I had to notify them because I was going on a board. How do you, you know, one of the things I talk about a lot is the stigma, right? And, and the stigma that we face, I mean, think one of the things you and I are talking about it, right? We were both so afraid that this is, and I hadn't thought about this before. We were so afraid that we were going to be labeled really mentally ill, that we would prefer to be a drug addict. So you have these like tears, right? Personal, you have tears of inside yourself, like, oh God, am I a schizophrenic? Cause you know, the drugs are making me hear things. And then, oh, well, it's okay. It's just the drugs. And I can, you know, you have these tears of acceptability almost, right? And then, and then the world, you, you assign them to the world or they, they are real in the world of stigma. And now mental health is, is, you know, emerging as something that's much more acceptable, but substance abuse is still, you know, struggling to come out from under the stigma. And in the, the, the legal world, especially you're working in the federal government, but also in Silicon Valley, I'm wondering if there were times where your experience was incredibly useful or you were able to point people in the right direction or any situations that you were uniquely qualified for as a woman in recovery in the legal system. I mean, the only thing I can say is that when I was a judge, there I had to apply certain law that related to substance use disorder, and um, there it was specific and it was required. It was mandatory. So when when someone's testifying in front of me and they have a history of, mm-hmm. of addiction, um, I, I mean, I I I, fe- I was able to approach it in a a non-judgmental right. way, right? And I don't, sometimes other judges, and I don't, I don't mean to disparage anyone individually, but that can yeah. be a challenge for some who know don't really about understand it. what it is. They view it as a choice or a personal failing or a moral failing. And so at least when I, I, I asked the questions that I had to ask to get the information that I needed so that I could apply the law that I was required to apply. But I certainly hope that I did it in a non-judgmental way where I was just, just asking what I needed to know. I wasn't trying to, you know, beat them up about it or, or you know, have a negative um, judgment about them as a person. I was only asking because I had to, and I and I and I asked the questions that needed to be done, and, and then I moved on. You know, I got the information right. that I needed, and then I moved on. Um, so at least in that situation, I do feel like it was helpful because I know that a lot of the people when they're testifying, for one thing, people testifying in front of a judge is always nerve wracking. But then if you have something like that in your history, it can be even more nerve wracking because they won't, they don't know how it's going to be judged either. And I hold right. a major decision about their life in my hands. So I, I, I would guess that after the lawyers got to know me, they would at least be able to reassure them. Judge O'Connor is only going to ask you about that, you know, in, in a matter of fact way, you know, yeah. in a matter yeah. of fact way to get the information that she needs. You don't have to worry that she's going to, you know, 
rake you over the coals about it or something along those lines. Right. Which we need. We need people who, you know, who are, I, I, what I find, you know, fun about recovery um, is you have people embedded in all areas, you know, in, in the government, in, 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 you know, every, every type of job, every, you know, and, and sometimes I used to have a, um, an AA necklace and, you know, people would I'd be somewhere and someone would say, Oh, I'm in, you know, I'm, I'm in recovery too. And, you know, you have that instant connection and we need people who are looking out for this issue embedded everywhere. I spend a lot of time talking to people who have professional jobs in one way or another who are struggling with substance abuse and they are afraid to get help. They're afraid to get help. They're afraid to access their benefits. They're afraid to reach out because they're afraid of what the world will think or, or, or um, how it'll end up. And I'm curious if you have thoughts around, you know, having been a professional person, I'm sure you, you probably talked with people who have, who struggle with some sort of substance abuse and getting help in, in today's day and age. I mean, part of the reason once I, I took early, as I emphasize, early retirement. <laughs> and once I wasn't a judge anymore, I was able to speak more openly. And I have done a lot of that. It's only been two years. And I've, I've really significantly increased my speaking engagement. I had a piece published in the Wall Street Journal called I Beat Addiction Without God. As I say, it's hard to be more open about your recovery than to announce in the Wall Street Journal that you were Absolutely. <laughs> yep. Yeah. No, that's, 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 that takes you to the top of the, uh, the food chain there. But it is also, um, I also really felt the obligation to start speaking up more because I could, because I don't have the professional ramifications right. that other people will face, but also because I do have 27 years and I did it the secular way. And so I want to really stand up and, and be an example of the um, efficacy of multiple pathways and you know finding other options if that's a better fit for you, reassurance that it's okay to do it a, a way other than 12-step. If, if, if you're going to have greater success doing it another way, but also in a way, because the judge sort of helps get a little bit of attention. I mean, I call my personal story from junkie to judge, and I do that for a number of reasons, but some of it is that those two words, junkie and judge, both have a social resonance, right? Right, right. I mean, junkie, so, so in a, there's sort of a, you were talking about the, the mental health sort of hierarchy, but there's really a hierarchy in, soci in society's view about substance use disorder. Totally. And it's better to use alcohol than meth. It's better to pop pills than to shoot speed. And I shot speed, right? So I'm sort of at the, the society's version of the low end, the, the worst end of substance use disorder. And yet, judge has a positive social resonance. And I was able to go from one to the other. And I hope that that is um, an example of what recovery means, what recovery can mean. First of all, that it's no matter how deep someone is in their addiction, that's not who they really are, right? That's not the person that they would be if they were sober. That's the person they are in the middle of their addiction. I did a lot of things in the middle of my addiction and I wouldn't do today, right? Um, and my behaviors weren't great in, in many different ways. And so, and, and it's also that in recovery, you can go anywhere you want. I mean, you're getting your MBA. You know, I was a judge. It doesn't, it's not that you have to be like us and get a higher education. Right. 
It's that the world is open to you. Right. That you can if you want to. You can if you want to. You can find the path that's going to make make you happy professionally. I mean, I the judge, to be honest, it's not my biggest accomplishment, right? right. My biggest right. accomplishment is living a life that has little self-created chaos. <laughs> That is the most important thing. (laughs) Amen. I mean, I I always laugh like my, you know, I always laugh that I, the things I have in my life that look like major accomplishments are often me creating massive chaos in my life, right? Like going to business school while I have really small children and, and own a business and what, you know, like I'm creating intensity and chaos in my life. Right. But it looks like, you know, it, it, it is rewarded. And some of the greatest, some of the greatest accomplishments based on what is difficult for Ashley are things around consistency, you know, just, just, just consistency, moderation, think things that are really, they're just not really difficult for me and my personality. They're not that shiny and pretty, but they are the hardest, you know, hard fought things in my life. And, and, you know, what society, I think there's both, right. I can walk into a, a recovery meeting and say, oh my gosh, I've made my bed, paid all my bills on time. I, you know, I fill my car with, with, you know, full tank of gas. Uh, my children are, you know, you know, I'm nice to my children, whatever it is. I can say all those things that people are like, yes, you know, you go Ashley, like they know they get that those are the difficult. And then I can go out into the world and say, here's my resume. Here's what I've achieved. Right. That's what you're talking about. And there's the beauty of being recognized for both. And that's, that's what we're saying is like, you're both, you're both. And it's okay to be, the person who I call my, you know, friends and, and we're talking about, you know, the basics and then it's okay to be the judge and, and the societal, you know, hierarchy. It's really valuable to show the world those things because we are often thought of in, as just that junkie. Exactly. Right. And, and, you know, when I got in recovery at 32, I never imagined that that was where I was going to end up professionally. I I right. thought I was already old and I'm sure I could make progress, but there was going to be a cap, like a limit to my ability to move forward. And that was just untrue. And so I hope that anyone who's in newer recovery, you know, un- understands that wherever you think you are or wherever you think you might be able to get to, your imagination in early recovery isn't big enough to encompass all the possible possibilities of your life. And I always, I I think to myself, I've said this before and it sounds so trite, but I, I have everything I didn't know. I got everything I didn't know I wanted, right? If I had gotten everything that I wanted or that I thought I needed, I wouldn't be as happy as I am today because I was using logic and experience based on what I had seen and known and not based on that incremental build that I got. You know, I, I, when I was 20, I thought that, you know, you have to, I thought I'm going to marry for money and I'm going to, you know, I told my sponsor, she laughed at me. I said, I'm going to marry for money because, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, it'll be fine. And, and, uh, you know, I need to have the, all the things and, and, uh, and I laugh looking back now, right. Cause I, I didn't marry for those things at all. And, uh, and I'm so much, so grateful, but those were lessons learned, right? We build our life based on whatever the lessons learned. And so, you know, I have everything I never knew I wanted. Yeah. I mean, and the reality is that 
what we want changes over time. And, and that includes in our recovery, right? I mean, one of the things that LifeRing talks about with this, what I did, they call it, they now call it, they didn't at the time, they now call it a personal recovery plan, but our recovery plan evolves over time. What you need in the first six months is not probably what you need at year three to four. You know, it evolves. And that can include which support groups you're interested in, which ideas you're interested in. And for me, one of the benefits of the self-empowerment side of, of the way I approach recovery is that I was able to take those techniques and use them to deal with the trauma and, and the other areas of my life, sort of by practicing or teaching myself that I could synthesize information and make good choices for myself yeah. and follow through. Well, that's useful skill. Those are useful skills and that's useful Everywhere. information yeah. in all areas of your life, you know, in all areas of your life. And, and for me, after the substance use disorder got under pretty good control. And, and for me, by about three years, um, I really felt like my brain had been rewired to stay clean. And I never really struggled after that, but I did struggle before that and after with the, the, the ramifications of the traumas. You know, yes. I, I struggled with anxiety for many, many, many years afterwards. That was actually my biggest post-recovery issue. Mm -hmm. um, and it took me a long time. And even now I say I'm mostly recovered from that. I'd say I'm 95%, you know, but there's still, it's still in me, maybe 90, maybe 95 is a little bit of an exaggeration. <laughs> And then, and so, and that's one reason I got involved with She Recovers because right. She Recovers Foundation is not just for substance use disorder, although about 75% of the women have a substance use disorder, but it's in the same rooms. Also discussion of trauma histories, women have, you know, domestic violence, sexual assault, people with mental health challenges, people suffering from grief, everyone, it, the mantra in She Recovers is everyone's recovering from something, but the reality is it's usually some things Right. Most right. Right. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Most women with substance use disorders, many of them, a very high percentage have trauma history or some yes. other issue going on. And so in She Recovers, one of the then the benefits of that is that it's not you're not siloing out in one group you're right. talking about your trauma and another your substance use disorder. It's all in one. And for some women, that adds a lot of value, either in early recovery or later. And she recovers is open to multiple pathways. A lot of she recovers members are 12-step members. There are women for sobriety members. It's Everyone is welcome and, and all pathways are respected. And so we can focus on supporting each other about the substance use disorder or in these other areas of our life. And so that's just sort of an example of how what you need or what you're working on can change over time. And so you can look for a different fit about what's going to be appropriate for me at this point in my recovery. And um, life ring and secular uh, recovery, secular SOS, the they are male inclusive. Is that accurate? Yeah. So life ring has um, women only meetings. It has you know s certain other groups like LBGTQIA plus meetings, um, different types of subgroups. We have a yep. meeting for liver spot for people with um, medical mm -hmm. issues, usually mm -hmm. from alcohol. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, but yes, it, but it is it is for men and women. Uh, and life ring also though does. In, is open to people going to other programs. So in LifeRing, if you're you if you're also going to 12 steps or smart, yeah. you don't have to hide that in a LifeRing meeting. 
life ring want you're building a personal recovery plan and that means any source of information that's going to be useful to you yes life ring is 100 percent um amenable to that so you can actually say in a life ring meeting when i was at this aa meeting the other day somebody said this and i thought it might be useful for the group and no one's going to look at you like oh you know you went to an aa meeting no so it's also has a more of a hybrid approach that um, i mean a lot of life ring members just do life ring but a number of them do multiple programs and that can also be because some Sometimes 12-step people later in their recovery want to explore other options and Mm -hmm. add, it doesn't even mean that they're rejecting all the 12-step ideas. It can be that they're looking for some new ideas either to bolster their recovery or to work different aspects of their lives that they just hadn't done in the first, you know, year or two of their recovery. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's really important to know that it's okay to do that. And that there are options out there. Um, I love that. So the the programs that we want to put out there for people to check out, She Recovers Found She Recovers Foundation, um, Life Ring. What are the other ones? Uh, I, I mean, it's Life Ring Secular Recovery. So you can okay, find the LifeRing.org, SheRecovers.org. And Women for Sobriety, if you're if you're interested in that, it's another good option. Smart, a lot of people like that. That's a cognitive behavioral mm-hmm. approach. And a lot of people like that as a fit. Um, I also um, would like to say anyone can always reach out to me. You can, mm-hmm. you know, reach me, MaryBeth at JunkieToJudge.com. And I have a website, junkytojudge.com. I'm always happy to interact and answer any questions. And I usually do get emails after presentations and I look forward to them. Are you on social media at all? I'm on Facebook only on um, LinkedIn, but it's really easiest to reach me by email. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you are extraordinary and I really appreciate your time and sharing with us and uh, your story is, is amazing. It's really amazing. And, and, and how much you have put into your recovery to, you know, how motivated you've been is, is inspiring. So thank you so much for sharing with us. Well, uh, thank you, Ashley. I really do appreciate being here today and I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings, useful recovery information, and entertainment. Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meeting schedule and find additional resources. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.